Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to chat. My name is Brian Kearney. Absolutely delighted today to be joined by Niall Breslin, aka Brezzy. Niall, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing good, man. I'm actually um, I'm feeling really positive today. I had my first show in um, over 18 months at the weekend in the UK. So um, I've, I've, I've sort of regained that feeling of being on stage and uh, to be around people again. So I'm, I'm feeling really good. And from, from seeing your own Instagram, it seems like you had one of your first shows in a long time as well. Yeah, I had slightly different, I'm sure, to yours. There was only 200 people allowed at our, our show, max capacity. And there was these kind of rules and regulations, kind of Orwellian rules and regulations that we still have around live music in Ireland. Uh, it, it was an incredible buzz just to get to perform in front of human beings again. But it, it still felt like we're being so heavily restricted. And even things like there was no... No, no alcohol on the rider because it was a government grant. I was like, lads, we're not 12 here. You know, this type of stuff. There was some of the stuff and the rules that have been developed have been almost barely believable. But uh, yeah, to get back is progress. Now next step is Tuesday or next step is the, the subcommittee meeting to figure out when we can actually play in front of people and earn a living again. Yeah, see, I think there's a lot of... Um a lot of the people who listen to this podcast would be in countries outside of Ireland. So just to give people a, a background um, to what the main reason I have you on the podcast today is to speak about the continued shutdown and, and the inability for musicians um, of all genres in, in Ireland. They were not allowed to work or to put on shows or do anything and how our government have completely ignored us and how how utterly ridiculous it is in comparison to other EU countries <laughs> to, to make it even more laughable to what's going on 90 minutes up the road from my house in like Belfast um, over in the UK everywhere all across America it just it is absolutely utterly ridiculous at this stage how this is still going on there's no justification for it and I, I know from seeing some of the stuff you've been speaking about, you've been a, an active, um, you've been actively outspoken about it. It's just, it's ridiculous at this stage. And um, you just like to think that there will be some progress in the next few weeks with regards to open up. So you probably have a, a better ear to the ground with regards to what's going on. Um, could you sort of uh, fill me in and the people listening in sort of where we're at right now in Ireland? Yeah, well... You know, without making this overly political and not getting too much into the politics, because I think we've all had enough of that over the last 18, 19 months, this government in its current form have shown their true hand of how they view the arts. There's just no other twist. They can put all the PR spin they want on it. They can get their people on it. But it's very, very clear a Fianna Gael, Fianna Fáil coalition government have zero interest in the arts or respect of the arts. They say they will. But the way I operate, the way I've always operated in my job is words generally mean very little. It's the action that is required. And in June 2020, a full plan of how we could reopen safely when the time comes, we were well aware that wasn't the time, but when the time comes, how can we open the industry? What would be the phases we could use? A real strategy, because that's what events industry does. It's, it's strategy. It was brought to the government over a year ago. It was ignored and it was ignored and it was ignored constantly. Uh, Epic, the, the working group Epic brought it, who are kind of events crews. Uh, and exactly what we knew would happen, happened. We got to the, the two events that we had, which were kind of pilot events, whatever way you want to develop them. 
which ended up just being PR events for government. They didn't compile data. They didn't compile anything. Didn't tell us anything except people enjoyed live music, which we already knew. And I myself was very optimistic and I, I've always been that way for, for, for leading up to it. But when I then started to see the engagement and the fact that our actual arts minister, Captain Martin, who, if I'm being honest, has worked hard and pushed hard and I do believe she cares, but she wasn't on the COVID subcommittee that makes the decisions. And that is the problem. There was no voice at that table. No one understands how our industry operates and works, whether it's a nightclub, whether it's a DJ, whether it's a rock band, whether, whatever it is, it's a festival. They don't understand the layers and nuances of the industry. They don't understand the, the industry. If you remove one part of it, every part of it gets affected. I own a recording studio. People play live music to compile enough money to go into recording music so they can market themselves to go back out on the road. So it's all cyclical. So over the last few months, I've seen kind of firsthand the level of disregard they've had. And as you said, looking to the UK, I then started looking at the data that was being compiled. And actually, the, the chief medical officer in Chicago for Lollapalooza, which is the biggest musical festival in the world, 385,000 people, she went as far as saying the safest place to be in America that weekend was that festival. You know, this is the reality of it. The data is being, we, we, we followed public health, we followed the science, and the science is telling us. And the, the problem here, Brian, is Ireland has lost the summer season now. It's gone. And that summer season would have kept many of the SMEs open, the small, the smaller kind of PA, all these guys. And they did that cynically and absolutely on them. They did it because they wanted schools to open. And which I totally understand. And I understand people's caution and concern about mass gatherings. I totally respect it. I am, um, you know, we 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 have come to the table with full solution-based approaches and we've been ignored. And to you know, only now is the government actually listening to us because you know what happened? They totally underestimated how much the media was in our corner because the media in Ireland have been phenomenal supporters of the events industry in the last few months, especially. Yeah, so it's 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 just it just it especially a couple of weeks ago I was listening to your podcast that you did and you had um, Luke O'Neill and for for anyone who isn't aware, Luke O'Neill is the one of the world's most renowned um, immunologists. So he he knows exactly. He knows what he's talking about when he's coming to to this, and he was saying that there's the 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 decision, especially around electric picnic. I think that's the sort of catalyst for a real backlash towards the government with regards to their policy that they're taking out on the events industry. And he was saying that he could not understand why it wasn't being allowed to go ahead. And and I I think you mentioned it in the uh, in your podcast as well. These these pilot events where people are completely separated from each other. They were all just done for optics and just to, to, to sort of put out the facade that they actually care or they're doing something to sort of make it look like they're doing something with regards to progressing the return of live events. But it was nothing of the sort. It was just something to appease people for, for a very short amount of time. So it's, it, it's very frustrating for me when you have someone who is considered a leading voice in because the, the repeated mantra that the likes of Neffet and the government have used is follow the science and follow the data and they're not doing it anymore they continually ch change the goalposts when it comes to what's required in order for us to sort of take a step towards normality again like it was first of all it was 70% of the country needs to be vaccinated now it's 90% of over 16 so it, it keeps changing 
in my opinion, to suit whatever um, decisions they sort of think are going to happen next. It, it, it doesn't seem to be any like forward thinking or progressive thought. It's very sort of overly cautious and stuff. And as I mentioned already, it's just so frustrating for me to see events happening all over the world, um, up the road. And it's just, and I, I saw something there this morning, they're talking about doing a pilot event in the Budden factory um, next month, I think, where everyone gets a PCR test before they go in and they go in. This is stuff that should have been done two or three months ago. And Electric Picnic was at a festival that was supposed to be taking place in four weeks' time. And now they're, they're trying to rectify it to, to get it back on, which is, it's just absurd. It's 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 something like Father Ted, this sort of stuff, because there's been such a backlash against the government. Once again, the spin has been coming into operation where it looks like they need to show that they're doing something to, to turn this around. And it's it's just for me and for yourself, it's extremely frustrating to be in this industry in Ireland at the moment. Systematically gaslit. Uh, if anyone wants to look at the definition of gaslighting, this is a great one to look at. Uh, if you look, for example, when Tony Hoolan said he'd have no problem with the electric picnic going ahead. And the electric picnic is just a symbol. And I understand people are saying it's not the whole industry. It's just a symbol of how the industry has been treated. And then that move was passed over to Leash County Council, who who ultimately apply, who give you the planning license on the event. And their initial reason for not putting the event on was because public health advice has said otherwise, which was fine. Absolutely their prerogative as a council. But then when public health advice said, I don't have a problem with this, that changed to, well, actually it was the HSC who told us. So it was such, like no one expects government to get everything right here, but I never did. Like it, it's a nightmare for them. I get it and I, I respect that, but we, we at least want really effective, strong communication. We've had anything but that. And the other thing, for example, I've a, I've a, with my podcast, I'm meant to be going out on the road in October. I've, Dates in UK and Ireland. I'm now in a position where I have to make a decision. Can I do Ireland? Even though they'll open it up because I don't have enough time to sell tickets now. And I'm going to go into venues and I'm going to lose my arsenal. And I can't plan. That's in October. And people have bought tickets for that. So, for example, I'm playing in Limerick. It's 650 capacity. By law, they've only been able to sell 100 tickets and they had to cap it. And now I'm sitting here going, they're going to give me a decision Wednesday. I don't have enough time to actually promote the shows and I could be going down to a show where I'm going to lose my arse on, on, on each show. It's the whole aspect of the, as well as their misunderstanding of how it's planned and how events are planned. And it, it really, it really, the one thing I realized at this point is we became collective and we started building an alliance, but it was too late. We need to now as an industry come together as strong and as collective as we can and figure out how this never happens to us again, because we got absolutely decimated by government in action because we didn't have a strong enough, we didn't have a strong enough collective response early enough. We had a strong response, it just wasn't listened to. Because when it comes down to politics, I mean, I've worked in this area for eight, nine years, even with the, the health stuff that we do. You know, I'm growing to understand more that politics is really about the preservation of power. It's about how do we maintain and hold power? Like, and and, and what really we've got to be careful about, Brian, is what I didn't like was the narrative coming from the events industry that was kind of against the GAA and going, you've got to open 40,000 people in Crow yeah. Park. 
It's not their... They're no, doing their not. job. I'm yeah. delighted the GAA is doing that. And I'm all about it. And it's not their issue. The issue is government made a decision and didn't give us the same consideration. That's always going to have blowback. So what we don't need in this bloody game is industries turning on each other. This has been hard enough. We can't turn on each other. And the events industry needs the GA. The GA needs the events industry. We're all, you know, in that horrible phrase, in this together until we're not. Mm. And that is where I found with the government, I found, I found really ineffective leadership, ineffective communication, and an inability to understand the nuances of our industry. And here we are. And SME business, friends of mine are on the floor. They're just broken, you know, by this shit. And I really thought in their heads, what, what hit them the hardest, I think, was the realization that the government don't care. Yeah. That hit them really hard. Not the idea of just like, oh, I can't work. But my God, is this the, as little disregard as they have for us? And as I said, I did two events that were government grants funded. Great events, well put on. But you start to leave these little rules, no food for the band. That's not in the budget. No alcohol for the bands, no riders. That's not in the budget. You're not allowed to provide that. So the promoter's like, what the fuck do I do? Do I give the band food? Mm. Like, do you know what I'm talking Do I feed the band? It's just the whole thing has been a, a, a case study on how not to treat an industry. And the only way we can respond to this is to come together now and figure out that this never happens again. Yeah. And I heard someone involved in the events industry, they used the phrase that um, Neffet continue to create a um, just a continuous cycle of fear. And that's for, from, from when I went to the UK at the weekend, Brezzy, it's it's like going from a, a different world to a completely different world. The, Ireland is is petrified by this continual, perpetual cycle of fear that's coming out all the time from certain sections of the media, from Neffet, the daily briefings, the case numbers, all this type of thing. It's just the UK. I, it felt like I was. It was two thousand and nineteen. Um, there's a lot of um, personal responsibility. It, it that's that's what I would like to see being brought in here. Like, there's there's so much um, bickering between people who are on one side, people who are who think COVID is so lethal, and then some people who don't think it's that bad. I, I think, as you said, it's it's people arguing with people all the time. It's like the events industry are fighting with the GAA because the GAA is being allowed to take place, and I just think it, it's there's so much conflict going on between people over the past year and that just it, it continues on and it, it felt, it, even coming back into Ireland yesterday I, it, I can almost sense an atmosphere of fear just around here the whole time and I think it's going to take a long long time for, for that to sort of dissipate in Ireland so I think that sort of atmosphere of fear it gives the government a way out in terms of not bringing back the gigs and the events to a higher capacity than other countries have. Would that be something you would sort of think as well? Or Neff has had to, they had to make it very clear very quickly that this is serious. This is, I don't think people grasp the seriousness of, of this. And, you know, there was like language, like it's just a flu. It's not, this is a, this is a serious shit. We knew it was, and it was, it was scary stuff and it was terrifying. And I feared for my family. I feared for people in my life that I love dearly who are vulnerable. And I think that messaging was important at the start to really make us realize, guys, we got We can't be messing around. This is not a bloody game here. And it worked on, on, on my side. It really did 
focus me. But then it became very, very kind of every, it was the distinguishing of any hope because there was the fear that they would make us complacent. And you said a word there that's really important, personal responsibility. You can't force that on people. Either people take personal responsibility or they don't. That's not an ethics role. That's not government's role. That's, that is what it is, personal yeah. responsibility. Some people did, some people didn't. That's what you're always going to have in society. It then became all power plays between everybody. And I, I feel then, I feel now genuinely from an ethic perspective, I felt for them for a point. I was like, God, like, I, I certainly wouldn't want to be doing this gig. But I do feel that some of their messaging and some of their language really, really underestimated the mental health and emotional well-being of, of the society. I don't think they fully realized how broken a lot of people felt. And I think they changed it. I think there was a Ronan and um, Ronan Glynn. Glynn, he said he put up a thing and it was just like, you need to do more. And that was the one where people went enough. Yeah. You know, we, we, we need to stop talking like this. We need to change and reframe the language and maintain the fact that we have to be cautious here. But guys, if you keep hitting us with this, it's going to, it's going to bury. It's, it was so difficult to hear. So they did start to change their narrative and to hear Tony Hoolan say something like, I, I'm okay with electric picnic. I nearly fell off my seat. I did yeah, not so expect I, him to say I that. I couldn't believe that. That yeah. was shocking. Shocking. Yeah. It was just like, whoa. But so I believe overall, if I'm being honest, the communication and language really underestimates where people were at in our society and how, how, how overwhelmed we became. So when it came to the, the reopening of society and government and effort, this was all, it, it all became about weird influences of power. Like, here's the thing, like you have two, no matter how Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil spin this, they hate each other. They despise each other and they had to kind of come and put on a front. But then you could see all this weird internal power plays going on and people leaking information. And I'm thinking to myself, we surely as a society that has really pulled its finger out of its hole to figure out we deserve better than this bullshit and this leaking and this fucking power play and this disregard for the electorate. Because that's what it became. And then they started just leaking that, that that leaking of information and, and the game playing thing. And, and they'll say it, they didn't do it, but they did. And then the, the inability to take account for their actions, like, you know, Marion Gate, like uh, Golfgate, you know, these, these aren't massive things, but they were mass, massive because the audience and the electorate were on their knees and we were so fucking tired and exhausted. So when we don't see accountability and we see things like leaking, it, it, it hurts a lot. And I think we deserve better. That's it. That's, that's it in a nutshell. I, I, it doesn't give me pleasure to always give out about governments. I want to be proud of our government. I want to be able to go, I think they're doing a brilliant job. And in some cases they did, like the vaccination rollout was incredible. And you've got to give them the, you know, the, the Jews and that. That was really, they really, once they got the momentum, it was brilliant. But there's other areas where I just felt ego, power, and all sorts of other weird things took over. And I, I just felt that really, I felt that I wasn't in safe hands. And that is, that is, I suppose, where most of my anxiety came from. Yeah, you're, you're making a really good point there because it, it, public health, it, it should be an umbrella term that covers absolutely everything. It shouldn't just be centered on this one thing that's been happening over the last 18 months. Like, I know myself, my own mental health has suffered greatly 
over the past 18 months and I consider myself someone who's very in, t- in touch and he was sort of well aware of his own mental health I, I have a regime and I stick to it and I'm, I'm sort of I'm mentally strong in how I cope with stuff so it, it was all centred on the one thing and that was sort of the frustrating thing for me because so many people were struggling in so many different areas and it, it's it's just been so so fucking hard man to deal with the last 18 months and just to just to never hear I know it's a difficult situation and I'm sure the people in there are doing that the best that they possibly can but it, it was just a constant stream of grim 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 bad news and when things weren't going right, we're asked to do more. As you said earlier on, I can't fucking give anymore. Like, what, what more do you want from us? You know, it's so tough. When that particular, and I, I actually felt a little bit, I don't, I, I think they completely misread the audience. I think that's happened a lot. And when I say audience, I might, that sounds a bit reductionist. It is, it is a, a society, but, you know, our jobs as musicians and performers is is to know your audience, is to really know them and know how they receive and hear things and how they react to them. And I just looked at some of the things that were put out. And I suppose, like, for example, when someone talked about Marion Gate and it became this big, massive thing and I was asked about it. And people were saying, well, it was within the rules. OK, grand, listen, we didn't. And I go, OK, even if that was all the case, was that good leadership? Is that what you want from a leader? Do you, you know, was that the right thing to do? Is that something that makes you feel collective with a society that you're trying to uh, govern? No, none of those things. So whether this was legal or within rules or guidelines, it doesn't matter. It was bad leadership. It was bad leadership at a time and led by you need, need a leader to stand up and go, I am fucking with you and I am pulling, you know, and we, we just didn't get that ultimately. And, you know, you look to New Zealand and other countries where Jacinda Ardern, you know, who's seen, I suppose, as the kind of the pinnacle of how to, did she get everything right? I doubt she did. I don't know. But I felt when I heard her talk, that there was empathy to it. Like I, I saw like, like, here's the thing, Michal Martin, I interviewed him. He's a nice man. He is a nice guy. Like, and I actually, I, I, I enjoyed chatting to him. But when he came on the RT news and he was asked about the lives events, it became very defensive and very, there was no empathy. There was no like, guys, I, I can't even imagine what it feels like to be in the events industry right now. I know this has been immensely heavy on your shoulders. It was immediately like GA is the heartbeat of this society. I'm like, dude, you're our leader. Please give us more. Please tell us, you know, I'm not asking you to stroke our head and tell us everything's going to be okay. But give us a bit of empathy here, man, because the damage this has done to my free, my peers and my colleagues and my friends until I don't think any of them are going to see it. And that's the reality. They're going to make a decision. They're going to start reopening and phasing reopening of society. But then there's going to be big legacy issues because there's many SMEs who, who aren't going to be able to survive financially because the gear that they've had is depreciated. They have big tax bills coming that they're not going to be able to pay because they haven't been able to work. So these are the legacy issues that we're going to have to keep very, very close eye on. And Pascal Dunn, who's going to have to be involved. Nobody in this industry wants their arse wiped. Nobody. We don't want that. We don't, we don't want handouts. We just want to work. And we want to be able to be in a position where we're not worried about our business closing every second of the day. Yeah, and the, the, the very frustrating thing is, is to hear people in these elevated positions of power who are on probably more money than they've ever been on 
and who aren't affected financially or dealing with the stuff that we've got to deal with, they're telling us that we need to do more. It's That's a very frustrating thing. I think if they were in our position and if they had their entire um, economic situation completely changed, their tone would be completely different. You know, it's, it's that's a very t- difficult thing for me to take as well. You know, it it can be it can be very easy to get overly emotional about it and to get overrun by the emotion of it and get angry on when you've got three minutes on news talk to talk about this. When you've three minutes, you gotta get you gotta get your points across. And if you get over, if you lose that emotional regulation, then you which is so easy for anyone to do. So what I started to do was go right. Let's remove the emotion. We're well aware of the emotion of this. Let's let's talk economics here because I know this is what the government might be talking about. Let's talk about the viability of this industry. And then you start talking about for every euro you spend in an event industry, eight euro goes back into the economy. There's very few other industries in the world that has that payback. You look at things like the amount of people that work in the industry, the amount of money it contributes to GDP. If you look in America in 2019, for example, the top five contributors to GDP in 2019 were live events, 132 billion. And that is quite similar across the spectrum of of countries that love live music, like Ireland, like the UK. So now we're getting into the economics of it. Now you're wondering why they've been so ridiculously uh, dismissive of the industry. And now you start getting into the creative industry. And let's talk about culture now. What does, what does it give culture? Yes, the GA is the heartbeat of our country, but the arts is the soul. And that's the reality of it. The creative industry is the soul. The people, the poets, the musicians, the DJs, the bands, the, you know, whatever it is. And I think it's now that we go past this, let's do a lovely board fall chat and show how lovely the arts and culture is in Ireland. We got to get real here as an industry, and we, we as an industry, have to take personal responsibility and figure out how we create structures and frameworks that, under no circumstance, does this happen again. Under no circumstance can we get a phone call from a major multinational and ask us to do a gig for free. None of this shit. We got to we got to stand up now and go bullshit. No, no, you got to value the industry. We we shouldn't be, you know, we should be, we shouldn't be doing shit for free. We shouldn't be you know, pushed around like this. I just don't think we should. And I, I don't know the solution or answer, but I know, the, I know that now's the time to do it. And what's your expectation about what's actually going to be announced this week with regards to the live events? I expect that, and, and that is a fair enough call, but this phasing should have happened at the start of summer. You know, that is ultimately, if we had started phasing then, you know, I think a lot of the arguments around electric picnic, this is how can we go from 200 outdoors to 70,000, which is a valid argument from people. But if we had actually phased, we would have got there. So for me, it'll be a phasing indoors. I'd say in, indoors will, will be about capacity things. So if you're talking a thousand capacity indoors, they'll probably phase it in percentage, just 30, 40, 50% capacity. Uh, just for anyone listening who doesn't understand that, for example, you will only be breaking even, even at 80% capacity. That's when you start to make money. At 40 or 50%, you're hemorrhaging money every single show, whether you're the band or the promoter or the venue. So it's not still not a viable, in any way viable for us to be doing gigs at that capacity. Outdoors, let's be clear here in Ireland, we're facing into our winter now, or sorry, you know, our autumn and winter. I don't know. They're probably going to open outdoors fully, but we're not going to be able to have shows fully. I, you know, I hope things like the Plowing Championships happens and stuff like that, big events and stuff like that. But I think outdoors will be fully, it'll be fully open. That's an easy win for government, I think, but they know full well that there's going to be very little outdoor events really 
that at that mass participation level. Um, but indoor events is where we've got to keep our eye really closely on. We need to maintain the supports until we're allowed work capacity. Otherwise, it's like saying to a taxi man, yeah, you can work, but you're only allowed to work an hour a day, but you still, you still got to pay your taxi uh, license and, you know, all that other stuff. Our costs don't change with these bigger these gigs. Our costs are still, we got to pay our crew. we got to pay our travel. we got to pay all that other stuff. So if we're paying 30 40% capacity, it's not sustainable. The big thing we need is for planning of tours. So planning of tours is anywhere between six to 12 months, promotion, developing the tour, getting the route, all that stuff. So whatever they announce now, you're not going to really see any big benefits from it for another six to eight months. And that is why it is so heartbreaking. They've waited this long to even give us a reopening plan. If they gave us a reopening plan at the start of summer, we could have planned a winter. But now we're all facing into a winter, not knowing what the fuck we're going to do. Mm. It just go, it comes back to just acknowledgement. That's all that the the whole industry really wanted was just some acknowledgement and a little bit of a plan about how how this is all going to open back up. And you, you spoke about winter there. That's a concern for me coming into winter because, as you can see from this fire, it's a seasonal thing. So it, it, it's worrying for me. They're trying to open stuff back up as we're going into when when people start to get sicker easier. So it's it's just, it's a bit strange, you know. I, I'm, I'm concerned about the, the months coming forward that there will be another fucking lockdown and we're back to fucking square one and we have to go through this shit again. I genuinely don't. I could be wrong. Like, I, I if if another lockdown was put on the table, I just simply don't think society would acknowledge it. I just don't think, uh, you know, because this is legal and, and we can't put on events and stuff like that, we, we obviously wouldn't be in a position as an events industry just to go, oh, well, we're not going to listen to it. We'd have to adhere. But I think society in general is, 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 is we've hit peak lockdown. And I think it's now, we're now looking at the vaccines and we're going, either these work or they don't. You know, we still have to take caution and we still got to do all the other ins and outs and ups and downs. I get that. But we need to either believe in the science now or we got to keep, that's what people saying to me on Twitter. Here's the big, it's a really important thing some people have said to me over the last few weeks, you need to stop moaning about this. You know, people, and I don't think they were being arseholes about it. They were like, listen, I was, I was fairly vocal about it. And I said, in Ireland, we've got to change the idea that somebody moaning about something is moaning. Maybe it's somebody standing up for themselves. Yeah. You know, this, you know, some lady, and she was grand, and she just said, you know, I want a ticket to the All-Ireland Final. And that was it, you know. And I was like, that's brilliant. I'd love to be able to go myself. But this isn't about going to a match for 90 minutes. This is about people's lives and livelihoods and ability to pay mortgage and feed their kids. If you can't go to a GAA match, it's not the end of the world. If people keep losing their businesses and their livelihoods, for them it is. So we need to move past. The other thing that was skewed this argument a bit was the fact that some people we're going, oh, I don't, you know, it's not the right time to let people go to gigs. This is much more than just people who want to go to shows. This is an industry. This is people's jobs. So I think I respect everyone's concerns. I always have. But we're tired now. We're exhausted. And we will believe in this. Or we don't. We don't. The middle ground place, the, the no man's land is fucking exhausting. Yeah. And how, how have you, in, in, with regards to the last 18 months, how would you um, 
sum up your mental health? How, how, have, you, how have you coped throughout all of this? I was listening to the news before I came on here and they're talking about the wave of mental health issues. And, and I'm kind of going, well, maybe they're just a wave of normal human responses to a fucking shit show. You know, maybe I was feeling overwhelmed, feeling that languishing, that apathy. That's a perfectly OK response. That's exactly how most of us should feel after what we've gone through. And maybe we should make a little room for that. And rather than pathologicalize it or say there's something wrong with us, maybe say there's something very right with us that we responded that way. And I think that is something I look at. And I believe I've had days, I've had those days where I went out to the back garden and screamed at birds, where I felt a bit utterly, like just that existential apathy where you're like, what's the point in getting out of bed here today? But I allowed myself to feel like that. I didn't beat myself up about it. I didn't see it as, oh my God, what's wrong with you, Niall? This is the, you shouldn't be like this. Like, you should be like this. I went home in Cocoon, my parents. I lived there for 17 months, 18, sorry, 16 months, you know, to take care of them. And there was days they felt a bit bet down and, and struggling, you know, and that's the normality of this. That's the highlighter. This pandemic has done one thing. <laughs> it's shown us that life is more than an inspirational meme and that reductionist way of looking at life like it's always darkest before the dawn horseshit that didn't get us through the pandemic what got us through the pandemic is maybe we're just a little tougher than we think we are maybe we're more resilient maybe we don't need that resilience program people are trying to sell us maybe you're tougher than you realize and that doesn't mean it was easy but you're still standing and i think that's what we've got to take out of this and that's what i'm going to take out of this this has been tough as fuck for me if you look at my entire industry, everything I work in is creative. Recording studios, music, tour. I haven't been able to do much of that. I've been lucky I've had the podcast. But when you're feeling a bit low and a bit beaten, doing a podcast on mental health can be a pain in the tits as well because you start reading about stuff. You're like, I don't feel like pretending I'm okay today. So yeah, it's been tough. And I, I, I'm an optimist. I'm not blindingly positive. I'm not that person who's positive. There's nothing to be positive about. This is shit. An optimist is somebody who goes, right, it's shit, but it won't always be shit. And maybe I will have learned a little bit from this. And maybe I'll be a bit stronger when I get back into the world. And maybe our industry will be a bit better and a bit more collective. That's optimism. And I, I am optimistic. I always have been. But that doesn't, there's days I feel really negative and I feel a bit low about myself. And that's perfectly acceptable and perfectly okay. Yeah, I'm fair. I'm exactly the same as you. I wouldn't say I'm an optimist. I'm probably a rationalist. Like it's just like things are shit. So just just say how it is. And that you said you said something there that sort of clicked with me. Like um, like with regards to social media and stuff, you have to sort of keep this charade throughout the pandemic when you're posting stuff, especially on Instagram. You have to sort of put these fake bullshit things or pretending that your life's great and it's and it's not great and that's one of the reasons why I started this podcast at the beginning of this year was to speak to my colleagues and, and people who I respect about how they're doing and how they're coping with what what is going on in the world and for me that's it's been beneficial for me and it's been beneficial for the people listening in and the people who are doing the podcast so as you said, man, you talked about going out screaming at the birds in your back garden. Up to two weeks ago, I'm still doing the same thing. I'm walking down the street so fucking angry and pissed off and, and letting out screams of just complete and utter frustration. And I get days like that and I get crazy stuff going through my head every single day. But I sort of, 
I'm, I have the awareness that that's an immediate response to how I'm feeling at that moment and that type of thinking and that sort of stuff passes and um, I'm into meditation, I'm into reflexology, I'm into acupuncture, I'm into Chinese herbs. So I'm into the holistic way of dealing with uh, my health and my mental health. And you were speaking about your podcast there. Um, fantastic podcast. I remember listening to it um, when it began. I think it was around July 2019. It was my mother, actually. She said she heard you on the radio and she knows that I have an interest in this. And she told me about it and, and I listened to it. And for anyone not listening in who might be outside of Ireland and is not aware of this podcast, it's a, it's an incredible... Well, it began as sort of a mindfulness podcast, but now it's sort of developed into, into more. But the first time I heard it, I think the first um, guided meditation that you had was the the body scan, and I was listening. I was listening to the first episode because I was traveling to Ibiza to play in a club, and I was in my hotel before I had to do the show, but I couldn't sleep. So I said, "I'll I'll, I'll give the body scan meditation a chance, just to sort of chill out and see if it can relax me a little bit." And I remember. You were you did the body scan, and I remember you were speaking about uh, becoming aware of your hands. And for some particular reason, I just became really uh, I had this massive sense of of gratitude for everything that my hands actually do did for me. And I've had that at various times with certain meditations, where it's sort of it, it can be where it releases like trapped emotions and stuff. But that where I had that massive sense of of gratitude for myself and what my body does for me that was the first time that it happened so it was it was a thing that i remembered when i when i knew that i was going to be speaking to you today but so with regards to your podcast and your journey into mindfulness i'd be really interested to hear how, how you got into it because i think i remember correctly was that something that you went to college to sort of study journey into this work was born purely out of a pretty difficult mental health from the age of 13 through many eclectic careers from professional sports into music into TV uh, I have for as long as I can remember massively struggled with my head and it kind of manifests itself in many different ways but predominantly panic disorder where I would struggle each day most days sometimes many times a day I'd struggle with panic and panic disorder and then pretty unstable moods and throughout the 90s and 90s, it was just completely silenced. I didn't speak about it. I didn't address it. didn't know how to address it. didn't have the language to address it. I was constantly on medications and all different types of things to deal with it. And when I finally addressed it, I had, a, I had a panic attack before a live TV show. And I just knew this was it. This is the rock bottom. And I have to figure out what to do here. And from that moment, things started to develop. I went to pretty serious therapy for quite a while, chemotherapy, where I was addressing things that I was avoiding all my life. And I fell into mindfulness kind of based kind of interventions, so mindfulness cognitive based therapy. And I hated it because I couldn't breathe. I, I Every time I focused on my breath, I'd panic. And I had a really negative relationship with my breath. So I, I really didn't like it at all. And then I started working with this guy and he, he was he was just an incredible communicator of how he used to get me into cold water and he'd look at me in the eye and he goes, are you thinking about anything you have to do tomorrow or what happened yesterday? Like, no, I'm just fucking freezing. He went, exactly. That's presence. That's what we're trying to get you to that level of focus. So I went on this journey at mindfulness meditation that really was the scenic route. It was, it was terribly difficult at the start and then it developed into something very powerful. And that made me realize, right, 
this is exactly where I need to find my solace and my peace. So that then led me into going to things like Vipassana's 10-day silent retreats into Buddhism, into understanding the elements of Buddhism and ultimately to do my master's in UCD, in School of Psychology in UCD and mindfulness-based interventions. And my background was a degree in sociology. I was always really interested in culture and started working with other people then. And people who really struggled to grasp mindfulness and meditation and really just didn't like the idea of it, they were the people I wanted to work with. I didn't want to work with the, you know, the people who would have, who'd already figured out this stuff or pretended they were figuring it out. It was the people who were challenging me all the time and going, this is bullshit. I don't like this. And I'm like, right, let's go with this. Let's explore this. And that's what led the podcast. I find, say, for example, the wellness industry as a whole are very difficult, toxic industry from times telling us to be blindingly positive all the time. That is not helpful. It, that is not reality. It's not sustainable. And it's not how the brain is built. And that's what mindfulness taught me how to do. Sit with the good, the bad and the ugly. Because life isn't a straight line. And this pandemic has proven it. You know, a lot of people might have been going, things are going great. And then bang, this fucking hit us like a train. And we're like, oh my God, how do I deal with this? I didn't expect this. And then you, you rather than kind of going, this is life. This is what happens. We get hit with these things. And actually what ultimately defines you is how you react to them. So what led me on the mindfulness journey and the podcast. Yeah, so it's a sort of similar thing to me, like around 10 or 11 years ago, I went through a very difficult time with my mental health. Um, I sort of wasn't looking after myself, probably drinking too much, partying too much, all that type of thing. And it getting to that stage where I felt like I was at rock bottom, if it put me on a different sort of path. So I sort of got into meditation and sort of reading and learning. And I think... I remember this, hearing the Stevie Wonder song um, Superstition and it says like when you believe in things you don't understand you suffer and I think that's a, a lot of stuff to do with mental health and stuff it, it, that sort of fits in with that so I wanted to sort of educate myself with regards to about how how I can get through my days as best as I possibly can and I've had to do a lot of work on myself but I'm proud of the work that I've done on myself because um, there were days like I went through like really bad I'm nearly agoraphobic to, to leave my house because when I left my house I was sort of getting hit with like depersonalization excuse me and derealization where everything just felt really strange and surreal and I was afraid to go out but I sort of just kept working on it and working on it and meditating and meditating and I sort of learned that when, when you can sort of sit with this stuff and you sort of just remain neutral and don't get caught up in the storylines and all that type of stuff. It's 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 not too bad. Everything is okay if you can deal with that stuff. You're you're pretty you're pretty good, you know. So you sort of mentioned it earlier on in the podcast as well that you've learned from this is that we're a lot fucking stronger than we actually realize, and I think it's important for people to see that they can empower themselves to um, sort of take control of their own uh, mental state, their own their own health, everything to do with that. So that that's one thing I've learned from the past 18 months personally is that I'm a lot stronger than I than I thought. Uh, a lot of my friends are a lot stronger than I thought and a lot of my colleagues are as well. So it's 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 good to see that there's so much resilience within people that they didn't really know that they had. 
you know, psychologists call it psychological flexibility rather than resilience, because resilience kind of means either you have it or you don't. It doesn't feel like there's a middle ground there. So the idea of site flexibility is like you're able to bend with this stuff. When this stuff happens, it's not easy and you don't enjoy it, but you can move with it. You don't break, you just bend. And I think that is a really good way of looking at our psychology is, is resilience is a word that's used a lot. Like right now you're going to see a wash of people coming in to start, you know, sell resilience programs and how we can be more resilient and how we can be better versions of ourselves. Bullshit. We stood up to this and it, like it, it has been, you know, people are going to go, well, I don't feel resilient because it's been really horrible. I'm as, re- I'm as resilient as they come. And it's been horrible. It has been horrible. That's the point. Part of resilience is recognizing that stuff is tough and horrible. And that's what it has been for me. And, and, but it hasn't been, there's other, then you get things like perspective and people think about, you know, the people who've had far worse off situations. That, that can be useful sometimes, but sometimes that can just provide you a big dollops of guilt. And sometimes it's okay just to keep an eye on yourself and go, I'm not doing okay here. And I know I've got, maybe I've got a nice partner, I've got a home or I've got a job, but it's still okay that I don't feel good now. And it's not because I'm a bad person or, you know, I don't appreciate what I got. It's just a very normal response. And I don't feel like doing cartwheels across the meadow today. I just want to sit in my hole and do nothing and not feel guilty about it. And that's, that's the ultimate skill in the modern world. If you can learn to sit in your hole and actually just stop for a day or two days. And what I've actually realized is saying to my partner, I've only been getting like one day off. And I don't think one day off is enough. You know, and, and that day off, I'd sit and I go, oh, shit, but I still have stuff to do around the house that I didn't get to do. And I better do that. And now I'm not going to sit down. So I really think it's important that people take that five, seven days of, of, of a break and literally do nothing. Don't bring your laptop. Don't try and even pretend you have to work. Just cut away from society. Let the brain and the body and the mind just come back to some form of fucking connection and breathe. And I think, I think by law, we need to bring in something that says when people go on holiday, if you as a boss email them or try contact them, you should be, you know, put, you know, some kind of fine for it. Two weeks wages or something. Two weeks to pay them. Yeah, yeah. Pay me, you know, and I, I do think we've got to create that level of boundaries, professional boundaries. And it's the same with music, you know. It's the problem with being creative is that sometimes you have five days off and your head doesn't stop and you start, oh, should I want to write something or I want to do something. But you need to do it, guys. It's... Never be more important. Yeah. And I think, um, I remember my wife was telling me that you did a a speech or a talk in in her workplace and she remembers one of the things you were talking about was don't watch Love Island or any of these reality TV shows. Um, Do you still sort of have that same opinion now that the show is in? Don't watch them. I I mean, I, I think... You know, what, what, what they are very good at is they're great escapism. They give people escapism. And I, I actually just released an episode today called Falling Out of Love Island. And it's people who are big fans who said they're not doing it anymore because it's just been too bad. They've just manipulated people too much. And it's just been too emotionally um, draining. And I think what's happened in the last 10 years, or no, sorry, last sorry, three, four years, is that people have become so much more aware of emotional well-being and our mental health that they've started to see a lot of this for what it is. It's manipulation of people's uh, cracks and it's, it's really not okay. And, and, you know, they, they will say they're taking duty of care, but from all intents and purposes this year, apparently they really didn't. 
and we know there's been devastating consequences. So we we, we got to get out of the mindset that these aren't real people, because I think that's what the audience almost feels. I can say or do or say whatever I want about these people because it's only it's only TV. These are real people. And I think I, I, I always draw it back that I think society and culture shifted on uh, the foundations of Big Brother. I think Big Brother was the first thing that's really changed our society in terms of television in a long time because it, it, it was really enjoyable and entertaining. And then you start to realize there's real dark side to this stuff. And then we've created this world where people think by putting a hashtag in front of a word, that makes you that thing, hashtag be kind. Yet they'll go out and they'll fucking torture somebody online. Hashtags are nothing. They mean nothing. Absolutely zero, nothing. It's your values. It's what you stand for. It's your behaviors. That's what means something. But I think we've created such a weird online world that we think we can act in one way online and another way offline. You can't. It's your value systems. What do you stand for? And if you say something like be kind about somebody on Twitter, but then put the knife in their back or someone else's knife in the back five minutes later, you're just a bullshitter. You're just, you're, it's just vacuous. It means nothing. So I think what some of these shows have done between reality and non-reality, fiction and fact. These are people, there's real life consequences to what you say about them. There's real life consequences if you manipulate them so they fit into a label that you want to use as a TV producer, like the problematic person, the hysterical person. If you want to do that, I don't think the public are, are, in, are accepting it anymore. And you saw, you saw it in this year's figures. They, they almost have. Because people have just had a year and a half of hell. They don't want to watch another show. show people breaking down. I find that really uncomfortable, personally. But it, there is escapism there, and there is a place for this type of TV. It just needs to, it needs to recognize and take a bit more duty of care that ratings are the king all the time. And what gets ratings? People breaking down. Yeah, and that's think, the sadness, sadness yeah. of it. And the thing is that, that a lot of these kids are, are under a certain age, so their their brains haven't fully developed into how to cope with with especially when they come back out of Love Island to deal with that attention. The I'm sure they get they get a, a ton of um negative um abuse and stuff like that as well. So, so for them to go from being such in a normal situation, their normal lives out into the public eye and to receive all that hey, Like I know myself, if, if I read a, a slightly negative thing about myself, about a song I've made or, or somewhere I've played, it, it affects me because that's how we're wired. We're wired for, for negativity. So for these kids to be dealing with that sort of attention and that level of mental abuse, it must be it must be very, very difficult. I, I wouldn't envy them at all. It's put out by people saying that they know what they're getting into and they've seen it before. I, I, I hear what people are saying there, but nothing on earth can prepare you for that. Nothing. And there's no training, there's no book, there's no manual for this. And what happens is like the brands, you start throwing money at them, they start making copious levels of income. They become a brand rather than a person. So their identity then gets removed from them and is created by PR and marketing and everything else. And when you remove someone's identity, it can be really damaging. So yes, they might be aware of what they're signing into, but I don't think they can fully allow themselves. So I do think, say, for example, Love Island, I don't even know. I think 
younger people are far, far more emotionally connected now and understand uh, the world. But I just, I just feel it's, it's, as I said, there's a place for it. Of course, there's a place for it. But I think there's also the opportunity to use it as, and I know UCC uh, have done this program called, I think it's still the Bystander Program, it uses Love Island to highlight the type of emotional abuse that men and women can get, you know, things like negging, gaslighting, uh, narcissistic abuse. So we can actually use this as a platform to go, this is not okay. This is not the way you should be treated or this is not the way you should treat somebody. And I think it can be useful for that. But unfortunately, once again, you're using real life people to teach this lesson. And something like gaslighting and narcissistic abuse can have devastating consequences. Like we, our biggest, most listened to episode on Where Is My Mind is called The Narcissist Nightmare. And it's about narcissism and what it can be like to be in a relationship with the narcissist. And let's be very clear around narcissism. Narcissism isn't just, you know, someone who like, likes having nice hair and having, you know, be ripped or whatever. It, somebody who takes pride in their appearance not, doesn't necessarily make them a narcissist. A narcissist is somebody who emotionally manipulates at a, at a, a real, at an industrial level. And as Tony Bates in my podcast, Amazing Psychologist says, narcissists don't love themselves. They don't know who they are. And they manipulate other people to bring them down to a level until there's nothing left in them. So that other person feels like, like you're being lovely because you're with them. You know, it's a, it, so I've seen that in Love Island. I've seen clips of Love Island where I was like, wow, that is exactly how you should not treat another human being. And it's a good example to show younger people, this is, if this is happening to you in a relationship, it's not okay. It's not acceptable and you shouldn't put up with it. Yeah, and fame isn't all it's made out to be. I'm sure there's a lot of famous people out there who would love to have the notoriety that the vast majority of uh, normal people do, you know? The place for this stuff. TV and whatever, our pop culture has always played a part, but we've never been exposed to so much information at such a level. Good, you know, and when people look at Love Island and we see the abuse, we start to normalise abuse. And abuse is abuse, and we should never normalize it. Yeah, no, you're fully right there, man. So that that's that's really pretty much everything that I wanted to go through. You know, I just want to say thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Um, just to let people know, Noel has a fantastic podcast called "Where Is My Mind." It's available on Spotify. I found it really, really good for for a, a really nice. Um, as an introduction, if anyone is looking to get into mindfulness, I think it's an excellent way to to start off their journey. Um, just want to say thanks to yourself, Noel. Also, for your, the people like yourself and Blind Boy, and people you you are really um, people in Ireland who have brought awareness to this um, to mental health, to looking after yourself. So I think you really do mean to be commended. Excuse me, getting mixed up here, but I just want to thanks very much for coming on the podcast today, and I appreciate it, man. Okay. Take care. Bye bye.